Did you hear me? We're in our new series, All In, as you could tell, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. So please turn there in your Bible, and if you need a Bible, just raise your hand, because Bill can bring one right from the back or over on this side, Lou, and, and uh, they want to get a Bible in your hand. If you need one, you can have it. And so uh, Matthew 11. I forgot to tell you, by the way, I meant to, we've just had such a full morning, but Sonia West is celebrating her first Sunday in heaven today. So she passed away this week, and uh, her service, uh, memorial service, will be October 13. It's a Saturday at 2 o'clock right here at church. And uh, so that uh, came in late enough this week. It's not in your bulletin, but it can be next week. So somebody down said to me this week, hey, I saw your boat down in the harbor. I said, my boat? I didn't know I had a boat. And uh, so here it is anyway, all in, all day. <laughs> uh, that's great. Fits right in. And... Um, <clears throat> Here's the situation. We're looking in Matthew chapter 11, and Jesus has been teaching and doing miracles and preaching, and he's had this crowd gathered around and his disciples around him, and he, he commissioned the disciples two by two to go out and to share with other people. And then the disciples from John the Baptist showed up. John the Baptist was, has been arrested and put in prison, and they come and they ask the question, are you the one who's to come, or should we look for another? And uh, then... Um, Jesus, you see, has answers their questions. He sent the disciples out, said, here's what you're supposed to preach. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, last week, Pastor Ron Klein was preaching. I've been so blessed with him here. Haven't you as well? I mean, he's here somewhere. Where are you, Ron? Where are you? Where are you? There he is. So he pointed out that John had this message, repent for the kingdom is at hand, and Jesus preached the same sermon. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But then Jesus took the same sermon, gave it to the disciples, said, go out two by two and preach this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And about that time is when they show up, uh, John's disciples asking, are you the one who's to come or should we look for another? I mean, John has been this flash of light. There hasn't been a prophet for 400 years and suddenly he uh, just brings light into the darkness and into the silence with this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. And so then Jesus has the same message. The disciples go out with the same message. You think three times here in the same sermon, God wants us to get the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because with no repentance, it means you're going to face judgment. And on your own merits, you won't measure up. It won't go well. So last week we talked what it means to repent, to realize you're headed the wrong way and to turn. And Pastor Ron talked about the Russian church, how even during church, when somebody gets to that point of saying, I need to repent, they'll just come to the front and pause there and, and to pray, even while the sermon is going on. And so if you want to try that, it won't bother me today, just for you to come stand and quietly pray or even go to the foot of the cross and to pray for us to be people who are repenting here, hearing God's word and saying, God, get a hold of my heart. John's preaching has this sharp call to people to turn from their sin and get right with God. And very few people did. Very few people responded appropriately. To, most of them just gawked at him. They looked at him like he was an unusual creature, like you'd look at somebody in the zoo, you know, an animal in the zoo. He looks funny. He sounds funny. He talks funny. He, he's fun to watch. You never know what's going to happen next. And one day while John was out there in the wilderness with this crowd around, he suddenly points to somebody who happened to be Jesus, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And at Jesus' request, John baptized him. And then John was arrested. 
So Jesus has been doing his miracles and his teaching, and he just says to John's disciples, look around. Go tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Jesus knows that John knows his Bible, so he would know all those prophecies about the coming Messiah. And Jesus is basically ticking off the list of all the things the Messiah was going to do. And then he ends with that, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. John wondering, you know, is Jesus really who legit? Did I waste my life? Did I do the right thing? Has my, has my life mattered? And Jesus is saying, blessed is the one who's not offended, who just keeps following me, keeps following me. And Jesus is saying, we told him the kingdom of God is near and it should mean something that should signal a change. Stop what you're doing and think, am I ready to meet God face to face? What needs to change so that I'm ready to meet God? And he says it begins with repentance. In fact, look, here Jesus has just wished off his disciples. He sent the disciples of John back to John. And then we pick this story up in Matthew 11, verse 20. It says, then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Ooh, Jesus is brokenhearted. His heart is broken at the response of the people who made up the crowds who heard his sermons, who've watched the miracles happen. I mean, woe to you, he says. It's not a call for vengeance. It's a cry of regret. It's a combination of compassion and of warning that if present trends continue, this will not end well. Now, we picked this up off TV, so we stole it from somebody else, but I want you to help me. You're going to have four opportunities to say, how's this going to end? Is it going to be good or bad? Ready? Here we go. Who thinks well? Thumbs up? Not thumbs down. Uh, oh, ouch. Okay, who thinks it's going to end well? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Which one? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Who thinks it go up or down? <laughs> okay, last chance. <laughs> Ooh, furniture movers. Now, Jesus has been preaching and teaching and teaching and teaching. Unless you change your response, it's not going to end well. That's his point. 
His ministry was about three years long from the time of his baptism until his crucifixion. And that first year, he gathered large crowds, so it's been called the year of popularity, but it wasn't really because the people were not responding appropriately according to Jesus. He mentions this little town, Chorazin, which is about two miles away from Capernaum. It's the only time it's mentioned in the Bible other than the parallel story that's in the book of Luke. It, it, there's never a story that says, in Chorazin, Jesus did this or did this or did that. But a lot of the people must have come from there. And uh, Jesus is already asking the question here in his first year. I've been preaching and teaching and doing miracles. What difference have I made? Then he mentions Bethsaida, which is on the Sea of Galilee. It's just five miles away from Capernaum, which Capernaum was where Jesus had his home base. And uh, it's uh, right on the Sea of Galilee. It was a fishing town. In fact, this Peter and Andrew and Philip all came from there. So three out of the 12 disciples come from this one little fishing village. In Mark 8, there's a story of Jesus giving sight to a blind man in Bethsaida. In Luke 9, the feeding of 5,000 is placed right next to it. And so you would think those people would have repented. Three people from there at least were able to repent. He mentions Tyre and Sidon and compares these little towns to them. They're coastal cities along the north, uh, just north of Israel. They're powerful, sinful cities, have been for centuries. In fact, as Tyre is on an island and Sidon is just up the coast and their heathen customs have offended the God of Israel. So they've been denounced by the prophets over and over and over. That shows up in Isaiah and in Ezekiel and in Amos. And more than one theologian has talked about or written about the meaning of the city. So you have all these cities, great and small. See, God started with a garden, a garden of Eden. And in it was uh, the tree of life. And the Bible ends in a city, the new Jerusalem, with a river running through it and the tree of life uh, on, on its banks. So early on, cities were built with walls for protection from animals or from, from uh, people with evil intentions, from outsiders. And when the people of Israel moved to the promised land, the first places God had them build were cities of refuge, cities where people who were weak or disenfranchised or had a problem could run when they needed protection they needed help pastor tim keller who's pastored a long time in new york city talks some about this and he talks in revelation 18 which is near the end of the bible we see that the city is a place of music and the arts it's a place of crafts and works of all arts and manufacturing of trade and retailing of technological advance of family building and then uh, pastor keller says this this is what the city was designed by god to do as an instrument of glorifying him by mining the riches of creation and building a god-honoring civilization the city then has a powerful magnifying glass effect since god invented it as a cultural mine it brings out whatever is in the human heart. The density and therefore the diversity of the city brings out the best and the worst of the human heart. Now, St. Augustine said this, the city of God is a place where the inhabitants love people and they walk on gold. And the city of man is a place where the inhabitants love gold and walk on people. So here's Jesus comparing these little villages of um, Chorazin and Bethsaida to Tyre and Sidon. It would be kind of like comparing Laguna Hills to San Francisco or Aliso Viejo to Las Vegas. I mean, there's sinners in all of them to be sure, but 
God is saying, you were given so much in your little town and you had the words of God and the miracles done and your questions answered and yet you were not moved. You were not moved to tears or to your knees or to repent. You just wanted your ears tickled. You wanted to be entertained. You went out of your way to hear John because you thought it was a show and then Jesus, it's like you were going to the circus with your curiosity and your amusements and your next thrill. And God says, take sin seriously. Look, he goes on and says, and you, Capernaum, verse 23, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. You know, Capernaum was the village of all the places in the world that Jesus could have chosen as his home base for his ministry. He chose Capernaum. It's right on the Sea of Galilee. And until this reference, you'd have known that Jesus went there and he, he healed a guy in church on the very first day he got to town, so word probably spread pretty quickly. And then he healed Peter's mother-in-law right after church and she served lunch. And by the end of the day, the whole front yard was full of people who needed healing and Jesus healed them all. And so you would have thought that, and then there's constant references, he's returning to Capernaum like he's coming home. I mean, you would have thought Capernaum was a cool place that loved on Jesus. I was kind of proud that he belonged to them. But Jesus says, you're headed for Hades. Sodom, the destroyed city of Sodom will ultimately be better off than you. I mean, wow. Hades was originally, in Greek mythology, the name for the god of the underworld. And it becomes synonymous with the place of the dead. And when people die, there's only two places to go, heaven or hell. And it's not talking about heaven. So your choices are limited. Sodom, of course, is proverbial for wickedness. I mean, God had a friendship in the, early in the Bible in the book of Genesis with a guy named Abraham. And he told him, go, and I'll show you where you're going to go. And he takes him from his home, and he brings him. And when Abraham came there, he brought his family, and his brother had died. So he, he put kind of have, includes in his family his brother's son named Lot who was kind of a hard-to-love and a hard-headed kind of guy. Anybody ever had anybody like that in your family that you've adopted in? And, uh, they're a little irregular, and you try, and you try, and you try, but you never, you know what I'm saying? They never quite get with the program. So Lot had come along, and finally his flocks and Abraham's flocks were competing for water and food. So Abraham said, we should separate. Which way do you want to go? And Lot looked up at the, the stony hill and he looked down at the lush valley and he decided, I'm taking that one. And he took the lush valley and he moved down a little closer, a little closer, a little closer. Pretty soon he's living in the city of Sodom. And God comes to Abraham, it's in, in Genesis 18, and says, I, I, I got to tell you what I'm going to do. I am so incensed with the city of Sodom that I'm going to destroy it. And you can read the story, but God said, Abraham says, oh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because he, he knows Lot's there. If there's 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, will you save it? And God says, yeah, I won't destroy it if there's 50 righteous people. Abraham goes, Phew. And he goes, who? What about if there's only 45? How about if there's 40? How about if there's 30? How about 20? How about 10? I mean, he's bargaining because he wants to be sure Lot gets saved, right? And he's saying, God says, for the whole city, I'll save the whole wicked city if there's 10 righteous people. And um, the next day, Abraham gets up in the morning and he sees the smoke going up and he knows the city's been destroyed. 
It's in Genesis 18. So here Jesus is saying it's going to be better for the city of Sodom than it is for you, Capernaum, on the day of judgment. The day of judgment is when you are going to be called on by God to give an account for the way you've lived your life. Every person is going to have that moment before God. And Jesus' audience has been thinking, you know, I'm going to be okay. I'm here from Capernaum. I'm a hardworking person, and I'm Jewish. Jesus, lo God loves us more than he loves you. So I think I'm going to be all right. And most of us probably think that too. We look around and go, wow, if God's grading on the curve, I'm, I'm going to be ahead of the curve. I'll be doing okay. Because we're God's favorite. I'll be better off than those heathens. And Jesus points out, you've been given opportunity over and over and over that they did not have. You have seen miracles. You have heard God's words right out of God's lips. And it hasn't changed a thing. And you will be held accountable for what you've seen and what you've heard and how you responded. And if you don't change how you respond, it will not go well for you on the day of judgment. So get ready, live your life with that moment in view. Ecclesiastes 11.9 says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. That's why David prayed, God, forgive me the sins of my youth. Matthew 12, 36 says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Now, see, we struggle with this idea. We wonder, how can God only have a heaven and a hell? He can't have an intermediate somewhere that, you know, you don't have to go one way or the other. And what about all those people who never heard the name of Jesus? What about them? And so we have this internal struggle that God says, the only people who are going to be in heaven are those who have, are, the just will live by faith and that they have had a faith in Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. Now, I've been asking you, and I'll ask you again today, if you haven't yet, please write out your testimony. Three paragraphs. It's simple, huh, Paul? Paul's here today, and he's the one who inspired us to do this when we went to Nepal. Write your testimony, a one paragraph, like three sentences. What was life before Jesus came into my life? How did Jesus come into my life? What's life been like since then? And email it to me. Or write me a letter if you don't email. Send People have been sending them. It's a blessing for you to write it. It's a blessing for me to get to read what, how God has worked in your life. But this struggle we have is, what about people who never heard about Jesus? Is God really going to, quote, send them all to hell? Well, God says in his word, in Jeremiah 29, 13, you seek me and you will find me when you seek with me, you seek me with all your heart. And when any individual in any culture, in any age, in their heart says, there must be God. I have to find God. When we search for God, God says, I will show myself. I will be found. And we, the best we can do is to leave this in the hands of God and for God to decide. God is fair, he's just, and he's capable of knowing every human heart. And in Genesis 18, when God was talking with Abraham, Abraham said, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare just like the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the answer is, of course, God will be just. And God is just. But Jesus' concern and anguish are over exactly the opposite. 
It's not from people who've never heard and now what happens to them. He's saying you people have heard over and over and over and over and over. You've seen miracle after miracle after miracle and it hasn't changed anything. Your response is not appropriate. You go, wow, that's a great miracle. Show me another one. Wow, that's amazing. Show it again. Do another. Ooh, impress us once again. And the response should be, whoa. That's the power of God. God's in this place. Am I ready to meet God face to face? I was home on my day off this week and somebody rang our doorbell. I had to say, whoo, one of us better run down there. Somebody better uh, dress appropriately to answer the front door. You ever had that situation? You know, you're dashing to get in your clothes so you can get to the front door to meet a total stranger. Okay, it was somebody who's running for office in Dana Point and he wanted to talk about, you know, what, what's happening. So I'm glad I got to talk to him. But that moment when the doorbell rings and you realize, I have a moment. When God speaks his word to us, we have that moment of how are we going to respond? And he's saying you start by repenting. And these people and we think we have plenty of time to decide. So I'll decide later. I'll keep collecting data. I'll think about it. And, 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 and we procrastinate. And time is running out. In fact, Jesus said to the people of Capernaum right there, your time has run out. You're out of time and you don't even know it. You've missed your moment. See, God is gracious, and he gives warnings, and he shares himself, and he offers, and then he waits for a response. And he's patient, but he's not going to wait forever. There are limits. I mean, what happens when we fail to respond appropriately to the warning? It's a true story, and it's kind of fun, but I was driving up uh, Pacific Coast Highway right past that rook outside the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. You know, it's actually a phone tower, but it looks like a, a, a big a, a piece of chess, okay? And I happened to be on the side that you could see a, a bike cop sitting right there watching traffic. And I, I went up to the church, and I happened to run into Ruth Sullivan, who reportedly has a lead foot. And... <laughs> So I thought it would be good to warn her. I said, Ruth, I know you're going to be headed home. She was just getting in her car. You're going to be on Pacific Coast Highway. There is a motorcycle cop right down by the Ritz. Be careful. She goes, yeah. And within five minutes, she was talking to him. <laughs> in the course of their conversation, and I only know this because Ruth told me, she said, well, I asked him, officer, couldn't I just have the warning instead of the ticket? Because I wasn't even up to my regular speed yet. <laughs> <laughs> yes or no how many would say yes no no he goes nope you got to get a ticket so she got a ticket and the judge sent her to traffic school and tandy said at traffic school even she was voted most likely to return <laughs> how many warnings do we need you know, I flashed to that story when I read recently of a driver who was in a construction zone doing 120 miles an hour when he was pulled over by a highway patrolman. And after the patrolman asked for his driver's license and his registration, the driver had the gall to say, could I just have the warning instead of the ticket? And the officer said, step outside the car, please, here, and turn around and put the handcuffs on him and put him in the officer's car and took him to jail said, I'll show you what's fair. This is what's fair. I mean, you don't notice accidentally, you know, be on your phone or something and have your car go from 55 to 120, do you? No. And so he got what he deserved. And there were no more warnings. 
So God is gracious and he gives us warnings and he shares himself and he offers and he waits for a response and he's patient, but he's not gonna wait forever. There are limits. And so if you know you're outside of God's will and God's word, respond appropriately, repent, and do it in a timely fashion. Now at our house, we have, I don't know if your house is this way, but we have some extroverts and some introverts. And when we all get together, there's extroverts and introverts. So we've had conversation of when you're asked a question or you're told to do something, you have a certain appropriate amount of time to respond. No, no, it's, it's not that long. It's seven seconds. Seven seconds is what we've determined. And so that way, even the introverts can count, you know, one, two, three, say, well, let me think about that, you know, or something that, that shows there's some kind of response because after seven seconds, sorry, introverts, but if you haven't responded, they fill in an answer for you. They make some assumptions. You're communicating whether you're talking or not. You wait too long, and the question is being answered for you, and it's being assumed. I'm being ignored, or there's not an appropriate answer, or they're having an attitude or something. You got seven seconds to answer. Now, that didn't quite work when I said to Cindy, will you marry me? I'd, I'd hacked through a little song on a piano, said, will you marry me? And then I waited an entire minute, <laughs> two Five, 10, 25. Finally, we hear click. She says, what's that? I said, I was trying to record this moment. <laughs> and so I recorded a song, and will you marry me, and 25 minutes of silence. But fortunately, finally, she said yes. So that's a different story. <laughs> so Jesus has done miracles, and the right message they were to pick up is God is here. And then the right question is, how am I doing with God? Am I ready to meet God face to face? And if you're not, well, that's where Jesus is, a wonder, is wonderful and he's amazing and he's inviting you to repent, to change direction, to turn away from yourself and away from your sin and to turn toward God and to put him in charge. You know, when you first got those GPS or the Garmin and, uh, you know, they, you, you, you punch in where you're going and then you go and you maybe you don't stay right on track and so it says... Do a U-turn at the next possible opportunity. You know, do a U-turn, do a U-turn, do an illegal U-turn. You know, recalculating, recalculating. And it's trying to get you back on track. Now, there actually is in the Bible one story of a prophet who, went, who told, God told him, go to a wicked city. And he got there and he told the people, repent or perish. And they listened and they repented and they turned to God and they were saved. Now, I was going to talk about that, but it's coming up in the book of Matthew. So if you want to know who it is, you have to read ahead. <laughs> and uh, you can find it in your Bible. That God sent a messenger and said, repent. And people responded and repented. And God was gracious and he forgave them. God loves to do that. He loves to do that. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. I mean, pray. Jesus is praying out loud for the benefit of everybody else. He didn't need to pray out loud to talk to God. But he says, you are, God is the Lord of heaven and earth. But he's also my Father. And we have this relationship. And God reveals himself to who he would choose. And it's not based on your IQ. 
It's not based on who's smartest in this world. In fact, look what Jesus said. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. God chooses to reveal himself to people in this world, not starting with the smartest people. He loves to do it to the, to the weak and the not as smart just to prove that his ways are not our ways, just to prove that he has plenty of, of uh, generosity and forgiveness to share just to help everybody to be humble to say, I need a savior, regardless how smart I think I am. And Jesus and God have this special relationship of father and son, and they're working together. And Jesus is working in this world on behalf of the father. And so God is, is going to bring people to him only through Jesus. Look at Jesus says in verse 28, his gracious invitation to you and to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. I mean, it's an invitation. If you're feeling overburdened, you're weary, things aren't working out, you feel broken, you know, we think, I've got this. I'll just muscle through. I'll just try a little harder. But for those who've heard the message of John or the message of Jesus or heard the disciples as they went out two by two, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Repent. And that's the point to start, to see our need. You know, our greatest need we have in our bulletin even today, prayer requests. You go check. Most of them are there for things that are health or finances. And your greatest need is not your finances. It's not your health. Our greatest need is to be right with God. And the only way to do that is to come in repentance to Jesus. Somebody recently gave me a book on aging well, and I don't know whether it was a hint or it's just a real good book that they wanted me to read. But, uh, but as, as I understood it, and some of you could, uh, would be experts and could uh, fill me in from your own personal experience, but part of the secret of aging well is knowing when to make changes. And from my experience watching people, most of us wait far too long to make changes that we need to make and to, to know what to hang on to and what to let go of. And we resist change. Uh, why would we choose change? Well, when it comes to the relationship with God, the only way to be right with God is to make a change, to start and to humble ourselves. And today, when we read God's word, how do you respond? Because to reject it, to say, oh, I'll think about it, I'll, I'll deal with it later might not end well. And, you know, you can critique how it was presented and find a loophole to hide in, but that won't end well either. And do you think you can delay or get more data or take more time? You don't know how long you have. And Jesus preaching in Capernaum, still in his first year, still living there in Capernaum, basically said, you have, by, by delaying and procrastinating, you have put yourself in harm's way on the day of judgment. Do you recognize that Jesus is God and that he died for you? And then he offers this invitation to you. If you're burdened, come to me for help. Take my yoke upon you. It's a yoke is a, some, a mantle that they'll put over two oxen at the same time and they pull together to finish the job. Jesus says, team up with me. Learn from me because I'm gentle, I'm humble. You'll find rest for your weary soul. Do it today. Shall we pray? Dear Jesus, thank you 
for who you are and what you want to accomplish in our hearts and in our lives. I pray that we will be like the people in that one city that heard God's word, they were convicted in their heart, and then they made the changes necessary so that God was pleased with their lives. I pray that that would be us. And I pray that you will use South Shores in your hand as a tool that can be effective in sharing that invitation of Jesus, of come to me, you who are labored and heavy burdened, and your promise to give us rest and comfort and peace and strength. So we come to you today. Help us with this thing of repentance to set aside our pride and to ask for your help. Amen.